Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. So it's time for us to look at another album because we have nothing else to talk about, right? Not a lot of news in going on in the music uh, business that we felt was deserving of uh, half an hour of discussion. So we're falling back on our, why don't we just talk about music like we like to do? <laughs> well, but that's it. We like to do this. And it's kind of interesting to look at an album. And so we've done a number of episodes in the past where we looked at albums that we really like. And then we recently did two episodes where each of us picked an album that we like, but we think the other person doesn't know well. So my choice was Bitches Brew. And that was four or five episodes ago. Last episode, we did Frank Zappa's Shake Your Booty. Shake Your Booty. And today we're going to do Orchestral Maneuver in the Dark's album, Orchestral Maneuver in the Dark. <laughs> okay. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark's. Why don't we just stick with OMD when, when possible? OMD. When possible. Yeah. Okay. So the reason I picked this album is because as often I was going out to the supermarket, I plug my iPhone into my car, I put on my personal radio station in Apple Music. It's only less than 10 minute drive, but I'm just, I like having music when I'm driving even just to the supermarket. And the first thing that comes on is a song by OMD, not from this first album. But when I heard that, I said, ah, I should listen to this first album. I haven't listened to it in years. And so I listened to it a few times and I suggested it to Doug. And when I did, Doug said to me, I don't know this one well. I only know their later poppy stuff, like their stuff from the second album, right? The later stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's it, true. It's a, it's a really interesting story about this because, first of all, this is one of those albums that at the time was not uncommon where it was released in the UK, but not in the US. And in the US, they released a version of it with songs from the first and second album together. Now, The Clash did this with their songs from their first UK album and a bunch of singles. The Cure did this with songs from their first UK album and a bunch of singles. And that meant that those of us who really liked the music, we first bought the US edition, then we bought the imports to have the real albums, the real music, the way the artist intended. I suppose so. I just think that the record companies were very cautious about releasing this new stuff in the United States. They weren't, you know, they didn't want to waste any time if it wasn't going to do very well. And early synthesizer band music was, I don't, I don't think they knew what to do with it in the United States. But it was such a, it was a juggernaut in the UK. So when the second album came out, I think they figured, well, we better get something on vinyl uh, over to the US. Yeah, so... OMD was not the first synth duo, but they were probably the first synth duo that really broke through. They weren't the first synth band. They were influenced by Kraftwerk. And I'll link in the show notes to a documentary from the BBC about 10 years ago called Synth Britannia, which looks at this whole period of when synthesizers came into pop music. And it starts with bands like OMD, and it ends with things like the Human League and Duran Duran and all that, when it became a sort of a parody of itself, that style of music. So early in the documentary, there's an interview with one of the guys of Kraftwerk, Wolfgang something, can't remember his name. And he says, November 1975, they're playing in Liverpool. And that's where the OMD founders, Andy McCluskey and Paul Humphreys came from. And these two guys came backstage after the show and they said, 
that's it. We're going to get rid of our guitars and buy synthesizers. This was 1975, and this first album didn't come out until 1980. They did release a single of Electricity. One of the songs on this album that was on Factory Records came out in 1979. But there was a lot of years between their discovery of the synthesizer and their creation of that first album. I think, like a lot of these synthesizer bands, they were more interested in uh, diddling around than actually making you know, careers out of it. These guys were, I think, epitomized that. Wasn't it? This, oh, yeah, this is the band where they took their first record advance and, and built a studio. And they figured, well, if the record doesn't do very well, at least we'll have a studio. And they were actually anticipating that their record would bomb. But they would still have a studio where they could still diddle around yeah. with stuff. So I thought, that, I thought that's very interesting. But a lot of these early synthesizer bands were... Ex-guitar players trying to figure out how to make keyboards go. And and they were hobbyists. And in this documentary, Synth Britannia, you'd see a number of them talking about how much they like to fiddle with the gear and how excited they were when they got a new, ooh, a drum machine. I think it was Human League, right? And they, they were like... They, they were like disco synthesizer music almost, right? But when the guys got the new drum machine, the two girls in the band, they just, you know, the guys were all busy for days with the drum machine trying to figure it out. Exactly, because it... It wasn't about the music. It was about making something go. It was about, yeah. you know, was, I, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. something I totally understand because I got into synthesizers because of guys like that. I had synths in the 80s. I was doing the same thing. I am not a brilliant keyboard player, but boy, when you've got synthesizers, you can have a 120-piece orchestra without much of an ordeal. Um, you can do a lot of different well, things. Well, not back then. Not back then. Don't forget, no. these were monophonic synthesizers. Yeah, to, to, to a large extent, they were just working with four or, if they were lucky, eight tracks. Um, yeah. And, and they, the synthesizers themselves were not polyphonic necessarily, and they, you know, very simple. But even so, that, that urge to just look at a keyboard and use it percussively and go boom, ba-boom, 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 like a drum beat, that's why you've got all these bass lines the first song on this album is bump, 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 bump. And then there's like a Bunker higher... soldiers, yeah. Yeah, and then there's a, a um, there's sort of a, a higher full-ranged keyboard pad above that playing sort of a counter thing. It sounds like craft work on, on pop music. That's what it well, it's like. Well, it's like rock guitar riffs that back tracks with guitar solos, and that's the difference. So, so this was really the first time... I don't know if there were any... Bands. I mean, you had singers playing piano, right? But did you have bands before that didn't have guitars in them? Did you have pop or rock bands that didn't have guitars? Acapella, maybe? It would have been extraordinarily odd to see like an all organ band or an all piano band or something. That would have been like, that would have been a gimmick. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been like the Norwegian Bachelors of Minnesota having a, <laughs> a, a pickup band or something playing Farfisa organs. I could just imagine <laughs> right, that. It just Crazy. In the Wikipedia article about this album, they talk about the fact that they had their own studio, and it says their studio incurred leakage when the lead covering was stolen from its roof, so McCluskey had to record his vocals under an umbrella. And and that's the kind of thing that gives it a certain amount of character, right? That these were just guys, this was a garage band, except they had a proper studio and not a garage. Exactly. Now you see why they wanted the studio, because they didn't want to be in a garage. They wanted... <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to to do professional sounding things, but they didn't want to be, 
they just wanted to play. That's all they wanted. Early on, the two of them performed together with a TIAC four-track tape recorder that they called Winston, named after Winston Smith in 1984. A bit prophetic there. And they eventually added other musicians. In fact, on this record, there is one song with saxophone. There's two songs that have some guitar, and there's some percussion on another song. Everything else is the two guys pushing buttons and... Boom, ba-boom, boom, ba-boom, yeah. ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. Or, or holding those long vibrato notes and all that. <laughs> right, right. Nevertheless, this was a hugely influential record. A lot of people liked it. It was not the first synth record to break through. Gary Newman was before them. But it had a sound that was, I want to say, poppy without being syrupy, right? It didn't have what you'd get later with the hair bands with synthesizers. It had a more, it was closer to Kraftwerk. Well, I was going to say it didn't have what Kraftwerk had, and that's that sort of static, stoic sound. It had a little more vitality and a little more vivaciousness, not much more. No one knew how to get those those feelings and sounds out of a synthesizer then. The downer of using a synthesizer is that it's it's got no, as Frank Zappa would say, it's got no eyebrow. Yeah. You can't add a lot of, of feel to it. So unlike a guitar where you can, you know, really get your personality into it because you've got strings that move differently. But a synthesizer, you hit a note, you hit the note. That's all there is. Maybe a little modulation, maybe some oscillation, whatever. But really, it's, you know, that old static sound. And a lot of these bands, you can hear it in these early albums. They're trying to get beyond that yeah, a little bit. Yeah. But it's really hard. Not having polyphony didn't help. Well, this is cutting-edge stuff when you think about it. These were the first uh, – these years, late 70s, early 80s, were the first bands to make music solely with synthesizers. And you have to also mention Gary Newman, John Fox, because after John Fox left Ultravox, I believe it was in 1980 that he released Metamatic, which was an even more influential synth album. And he recorded this in his home studio all by himself. Bill Nelson was starting to do stuff like that using – I think a four-track or an eight-track tape deck that John Fox gave to him. There was this little network of these guys, really nerdy musicians in basements or closets doing this kind of stuff. And the fact that it managed to break out and actually change pop music, because uh, you had that period, I want to say through the mid-80s, where you had the synth bands, and then after that, synthesizers were everywhere. They were in all sorts of... You know, this wasn't the Keith Emerson type of keyboard, right? This wasn't the flashy stuff. This was synthesizers. This was sequencers, which came out a couple of years later, which allowed someone to press one button and to launch a whole thing. Was that a sequencer on the beginning of Won't Get Fooled yeah, Again? or was that's that a someone... sequenced synthesizer. Okay, so, so sequencers are older than that then, yeah. It's drum machines that came out a little bit after this in the early 80s, and that changed a lot. Before that, they had the kind of... What would you call them? Electronic drum sets? Yeah, I guess so. Right? You'd tap them with physical. You would hit them with little sticks. Yeah. yeah. You'd have little physical things and you could change the sound of each one. I wanna I wanna correct something about won't get fooled again. I think that's an arpeggiator and not necessarily a, a sequencer. Right. A sequencer. He programmed an arpeggiation. Right. An arpeggio. When I was a kid we had one. I don't know why. But my brother used to mess around with it, and you'd be in the other room. You'd hear it going, "Great!" I don't know what the point of it was. You can't solo with it. You can't, you know. Yeah, but don't deny that it makes that song won't get fooled again. 
Oh, well, uh, yeah, absolutely. I can't think of any other song where that sound is really omnipresent. Well, not now you can't, but back then, I'll bet you could. Back then, I'll bet you would be more aware of it. Yeah, there probably were a lot. So I will admit that I like this entire album. I think even the boom, boom, boom in the beginning, it leads you, it's, it's fetching. It leads you into the atmosphere. But the two songs, Electricity and Messages, were huge hits. After OMD's first concert opening for Joy Division in a 1978 appearance at Eric's Club in Liverpool, McCluskey was inspired to send a demo of the song to Factory Records founder Tony Wilson. There you go. So that's, that's the first time that, that Electricity came out. That was in 1978. The single came out in 79. And then I don't know if it was the original or a re-recording on the album in 1980. Right. So you don't even you don't know the first you don't know the 78 electricity. I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. I'm sorry. I can't No, tell it's you. fine. I, it's fine. I don't know everything. I'm just wondering if they re-recorded it myself, but it doesn't really make that much difference since no one talks about the 78 version. Wikipedia talks about it being re-released by Dindisk in late 79. So it doesn't sound like it was re-recorded. Probably remastered, but not re-recorded. Maybe. Sure. Yeah, But Electricity was brilliant. It was produced by Martin Hannett. So, you know, big lineage there. It's kind of a shame they didn't stay with Factory Records. I'm not going to read too much into that. They went with Dindisk, which was a sub-label of Virgin. Wouldn't lean on them to make music so they could be left alone to diddle in their studio. Dindisk, by the way, was the company that gave them the money that provided the funds for the studio. Yeah, but Tony Wilson would have let them do what they want. That's what he was. Maybe they just didn't like, maybe it was too loose for them. Well, it's also early, too. It's early, but but maybe Tony Wilson wasn't giving them money because he didn't work like that. I think they had like a 50-50 split between the label and the bands, but nothing up front. So maybe they wanted something better. And anyway, Dindisk was a short-lived label. They lasted a few years. Because they gave their money to diddlers. Because they gave their money to diddlers. (laughs) But... Okay, we're not going to talk about the second album, which was hugely successful, right? Enola Gay? Right. It was a good investment, I would say, on Din Dix's, Din well, Disc's part. May, and what were they distributed on in the United States? Because that's the song that I and everybody else in college at the time knew about. That was, Enola Gay from the second album in the UK, but from the first album in the US, was the song that everybody knew. So Electricity sounded almost primitive compared to Enola Gay, in my opinion. Yeah, it sounded like an oldie, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) In any case, I I think this album is full of good songs. It's got like Red Frame, White Light, the middle of the second, I keep saying second side when we're listening to it in a playlist, the middle of the second side. It's got a quirky rhythm. It's got a Devo-esque rhythm, right? And remember, Devo was already around and they'd probably seen them. I think that Kraftwerk concert in Liverpool was in a club right opposite the Cavern. And it, the concert was the same night as a Paul McCartney and the Wings concert. <laughs> so apparently the guys went around and they put up posters for Kraftwerk right next to all the Paul McCartney posters. So the people who didn't have tickets would have something to see. But I think Devo played in the same club, so they would have heard that kind of thing. Red Frame White Light sounds a bit like that. It has that quirky, you know, jerky, herky-jerky rhythm. Also, I would suggest that, again, because they're diddlers, they they are imitative. That They're not... I don't think that they're so great at coming up with new things as just they are good at coming up with, well, new things, but that aren't necessarily <laughs> musical. They're just experimenters, you know? They, I, that's always the sense I got from them because 
obviously Devo had a lot of help from Brian Eno with that first act. And even their early stuff sounds sounds like all the early synthesizer bands. Yeah. Diddling. And because they didn't know how to make it sound. They didn't know how to make the sound more palatable, I suppose. Yeah. So if we go to the streaming version, there are a bunch of bonus tracks, singles. In fact, there you go. The electricity single says Hannett Cargo Studios version. So that would be the first version. There's a a cover of Waiting for the Man by Rue Reed, which is kind of interesting. And it makes me think of Devo, the same kind of way Devo covered Satisfaction. It It's not as rhythmically strange as Devo Satisfaction, but it is that kind of taking a song and turning it 90 degrees thing. Yeah. That's the song I tried to like from this record, but I've, again, they're, they're all of that fair to middling sort of, well, come back in six months and show me what you got. That's kind of how I felt, which I guess is what they did with the second album. Um, <laughs> but it, I, again, like all of these early synthesizer bands, you can tell that they don't know what to aim for. They're trying to go beyond craft work. They're trying to go beyond yeah. all of that kraut rock. And they're trying to make it more palatable and more accessible. And no one knows how to do it because no one's ever done it before. But a lot of these early bands, even the the bands in, in the United States, bands like Our Daughter's Wedding and November Group here in Boston, and you know, they were still trying to figure out how to make these electronic, dancey songs more palatable and, and less electronic sounding. I think what happened is pop music was guitar-based, sometimes piano-based with often female vocalists with piano-based or Elton John or whatever. And I think they were trying to figure out how do we get that? What's the equivalent of that with synthesizers? Especially as minimalist as they were in the beginning with just the two of them. What do we do to get pop music? Because they wanted to make pop music. Uh, in Since Britannia, there was a comment, I think it was Paul McCluskey, I don't remember which of the two they interviewed, and people were criticizing them early on. There was a lot of negativity in the music press in the UK saying that with synthesizers, that you don't need any talent to play a synthesizer, right? And he said, if there was a number one hit button on the synthesizer, I would be hitting it over and over to try and make hits, right? So they were a pop band. They weren't like, they weren't trying to make a statement. They weren't an experimental band, even though they were an experimental band. So they were tr- well for five years. They were an experimental right. band, right? And so they were because they didn't. They weren't putting out music. They were trying to make pop music, and they had to figure out how to make pop music. And I think it's largely because of this album and the popularity of this album, and the influence on other musicians that the synthesizer found its way. Go ahead a few years to early Human League. Go to Soft Cell, go to, you know... Yaz, Depeche Mode, yeah. uh, you know, all these bands. Yeah. What's interesting is that they were influenced by Kraftwerk, but also by Donna Summer. It's hard to overstate how important that song, I Feel Love, written by Giorgio Moroder, sung by Donna Summer, was. Did it come out in 1975, 76? It was, I guess it was arpeggiators in the background. There you go. Sure, Probably. That sounds more like an arpeggiator than a sequencer, I think. But that was hugely influential. Mm-hmm. And that was disco. I'm doing the air quotes, and everyone's like, disco sucks. I remember hearing that the first time. That blew me away. I had already been listening to Tangerine Dream, who, very different from Kraftwerk, they weren't making songs. They were making pieces of music, so longer pieces of music. And they have this live album in the USA Recorded in 1977, I saw one of the shows that one of the tracks was taken from. It has four tracks, one on each side of two LPs. So they were into long songs. They were into, 
you know, expansive music. Diddling. No, 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 but longer kind of things. They weren't... Longer diddling. Longer diddling, yes. (laughs) So, yes, that Donna Summer song had a huge impact on anyone who was interested in new sounds at the time. Because rock had gotten turgid. Not that there wasn't good rock music. I mean, what did we see? You know, Born to Run in 1975. A couple years later, you've got meatloaf and you know that's rock rock music but there was a desire for a different sound that wasn't rock that wasn't punk and that wasn't disco interestingly 75 so when that craft of our concert in 1975 may have had the same kind of impact as the sex pistols in 76 in manchester when i don't know what is 36 people came to the show they all started bands that kind of thing and Kraftwerk was hugely influential on this side of the music so you think of it at the time you've got your standard rock You've got your disco just coming up. You've got punk and you've got this electronic stuff. And the rock was the same. The disco was on its way out. But the punk and the electronic stuff was new. The punk didn't last as long. I guess the synthesizer stuff lasted a lot longer because of... Uh. Let's do this Jeopardy like for $200. This led to a huge increase in synth pop in the United States. Oh, man, I don't know. We were just talking about the UK. Now I'm like, I have to think about the history of the synth in the US. Uh, I don't know. What was MTV? Oh, of course. Yes. Well, yeah. This stuff was perfect for MTV. It was new. It wasn't a bunch of guys playing guitars. It was these guys all dressed up in fancy clothes, playing keyboards and bouncing around. But also, advancements in the technology made it possible to have very lush... I'm thinking of like Tears for Fears, Swing Out Sister, later Depeche Mode, all of these huge string and brass parts that were possible now because sound number one on your synthesizer is brass chorus. It's, you know, so let's use that. (laughs) It sounds like a brass chorus. So you, you start getting these really lush arrangements. And I think they finally figured out how to make synthesizer music pop music. It's by listening to music from... The 50s and the 60s, that was like Frank Sinatra, and these we had these great arrangements in the background. And once they incorporated st- traditional pop sounds and polyphony with synthesizers, then you had dance bands like Duran Duran and, you know, that whole romantic movement, that whole blitz movement. So it's, it really led to some very, very interesting things. But this formative era in, in pre-1980 is, is really fascinating. And that's why that Synth Britannia documentary is so essential because it really pulls all of that together. And this band is one of the, of many that was trying to do good works. I think one of the emblematic songs that matches that Frank Sinatra arrangement type thing is 1981 Ultravox's Vienna. Yeah, there you go. Vienna uh, Ultravox was another band that figured it out. They had guitars um and they used that. I know they went they went heavily synth. They did go heavily synth, but Midge Orr... Once John Fox left the band, they went heavily synth with Midge Orr. Yeah, but Midge Orr also was a guitar player because he's got that... It seems to me it's not an Ultravox song unless it's got that long, sustaining guitar note from Midge Orr going... All the time. Yeah. So, you know, there's that, too. But Duran yeah, Duran, but- then, would be would be the poppier end of that romantic blitz sort of sound. Visage, bands like that. Steve yeah. Strange, all those people. Yeah. I remember seeing Ultravox in, I guess it was 81 or 82, in New York City, Ritz, Danceteria, one of those places. And I really loved the first four Ultravox albums with John Fox. I was disappointed that he was no longer with the band. 
But here they come on with these long coats. And that was the thing at the time, the long gray coats, right? And you're like doing this on stage in a hot club where everyone's sweating and the long coats and the image and, and fashion came into a thing. It wasn't like glam rock in the early 70s, but it was a – well, I guess it was like glam rock. When you look at some of the, the hair on the Human League guys, the coats, then you get to Adam Ant with his, you know, wacky thing. So I guess fashion played a, a big part in this as well. Anyway, so this is the first album by OMD, so I can save a few syllables, and it's called OMD. And should we do some next tracks? Take it away. Okay, we talk about Brian Eno a lot, and he's one of my favorite composers. And in the past, I think last year, 2023, a number of EPs were released. One of them is called 77 Million Paintings. It's six tracks, 32 minutes. 77 Million Paintings was a CD-ROM that Eno released back in 2006, and it was a generative art creation thing. And the art would constantly change, and it was really clever because... It was 296 works that were overlaid and combined up to four at a time in a simulation of simultaneous protection onto a common screen. I had a copy of this for a while. This is something you'd want on an iPad. You put an old iPad in the corner, you leave it running all the time, right? But if it's on your main computer, you only can put it on as a screensaver. You're not going to sit there and stare at it. It had music in the background, normal generative music as he made. And so the six pieces were released as an EP on the streaming services. Now, I can't find much of a mention on this online, the music itself, whether it contains all of the music from the CD-ROM. I think it might, because 32 minutes sounds about like that. If you're familiar with this music, you will recognize some of it on this EP. I'm pretty sure that one of the tracks is similar to a track on the Shutov Assembly, which is a 1992 release called Ikebukuro, which was... I guess, created for an installation in Tokyo in 1989 from what I'm seeing, or it was a version of. Anyway, the tracks on 77 Million are pretty similar to a lot of the other generative tracks that Eno was doing back in the day. And if you follow the link for Eno on the streaming services, such as Apple Music, you'll find several other EPs like that. They all have a similar cover, which looks like a round record inside a square background, whatever. That's enough for me. What's your next track, Doug? Well, you know, we were talking about synth pop, and I really like that stuff. I like the danceable stuff. And I began to think about what I like about synth pop that I like about other music. And one of the things that occurred to me was that I like the repetition. A lot of people don't like that, but I like the repetition in synth pop music. Now, what else, what else is repetitive that I also like? And it happens to be R&B and blues music. And one of my favorite uh, pub rock bands from England is Dr. Feelgood. And especially the early stuff with, with, with their founding guitar player, Wilco Johnson, who has this incredible choppy but precise guitar playing style that it, it just keeps them really bopping. I mean, they, their first album is what I'm going to be listening to called Down by the Jetty. And it opens up with an incredibly vivacious song called She Does It Right. And it almost sounds electronic because what Wilco is playing is just so intense and repeated. You'd almost think, well, they could have just recorded four bars and just played it over and over and over again. And this is a band that's just guitar, bass, and drums. The lead singer doubles on harmonica, but that doesn't, he's not propelling the band like the other three guys are. Really some great stuff, and I'm glad I, I, I'm going back to listen to it again. I haven't really listened to all this stuff in a long time. Down by the Jetty by Dr. Feelgood is my next track. 
This was episode number 274 of The Next Track. Thank you for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. And we hope you'll support The Next Track by making a regular donation via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so we depend on the listener support of our Patreon patrons to keep us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.